God, we give you thanks for who you are. We give you thanks for the revelation of your word and how uh, you teach us who you are. Uh, we pray that you would help us to remember where we are at in this story and that you would continue to fuel us on this journey of following you, that you would point us in the right direction, that our orientation would be home, and that you would be, come alongside us and your spirit would give wind to our sails as we sail toward that ocean. In Jesus' name, amen. Um, we are back at Inhabit here, and I'm excited. Um, I do want to go ahead and out, out of the gates get this announcement out of the way so I don't get carried away and forget it. Uh, our next meeting, which is supposed to be January 26th, we have to cancel. Um, I am not going to be here. I could not get a flight that got me into Dayton, Ohio for classes on Monday morning at 8 a.m., um, and uh, also kept me here. Um, so uh, that is a challenge and also an opportunity for your group to get together outside of Inhabit, maybe have a lunch after church or uh, on the 26th in that evening go to dinner uh, and have a much better time than listen to me jibber-jabber all night um, and talk about what's, what's going on. Uh, what we are going to do, hopefully you are all getting the emails. I mean, you're here, so it seems to me like you are. You're not sitting in the sanctuary by yourself. Um, but what we're going to do is, is on that, that Monday or around that time, we are going to send out uh, one, one reading that would be what would have been the core one for that next two weeks so that you can continue uh, on that. But we are going to have to put those two together. Um, so mark that down. Don't forget, January 26th, we will not be meeting for Inhabit. We will skip that. It's sort of a false start to the spring semester, which is a bummer, but there was nothing I could do about that. Um, I hope that you... Uh, had a good journey with the disciplines over winter break. I know that I, uh, and, and I'm probably not alone in here, had a uh, difficult time having a rhythm uh, through the holiday season. Uh, it is very difficult when you are trying to have something that will move you through, and then you're here, you're there, you know, you're uh, working until midnight on Christmas Eve, and then your kids are up bright and early Christmas Day, you know. It's really hard to be like, to have a sense of time and, 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 and orientation, uh, but I hope that was fruitful, and we'll have some time in a little bit to talk about that. But we will begin with our biblical narrative and remembering where we are in the story. So I believe I've got a confirmation student ready to go, right? Kristen, you coming to do it? No? What do you say? No, I'm just kidding. Uh, so we begin our story, the biblical revelation about uh, th that we have with this pre-existent God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. This God has existed for eternity um, and has existed in eternity in perfect harmony and fellowship, has everything that this being would need, perfect community, perfect relationship, perfect love, and they've existed for eternity with that same love, with the same character, the same holiness, the same sense of justice and rightness for eternity this being has been. It is beyond our imagination, but it is. This thing that has existed unchanged for eternity into the past and will exist for eternity into the future. Um, this God exists in perfect uh, harmony, perfect justice, perfect holiness, and it is out of that perfectness, that overwhelming sense of being that this God chooses to create. Out of love, God creates the world, 
And he does not create the world so that he has some pretty mountains to look at or um, so that he can torment little beings, right? That's not what God is creating for. God is not creating just to entertain himself. God is creating because he is so full of life and love that he wants there to be independent beings that can share in his life and love. God is so filled with goodness that even though he needs nothing, he creates things to love, right? He creates things to bring into that perfectness. And so God creates, and what does he create? He creates a people in a place for a purpose. I've said those words too many times today. For those of you who are here this morning, you know, and I did that for three services. Uh, and so I am tired of saying that, but i got to say it a couple more times today. Um, God creates a people and a place for a purpose. He creates this people, and he puts them in the garden, right, uh, this special place where human life can flourish. And he gives them the purpose of reflecting his character in them, uh, into the world. And God is with them for that journey. That blue is a little light. Give it a little more. Oomph. There you go. God is with them, and God is, God's presence is there as fuel for them and as sustaining grace for them, right? Uh, and human beings are called to, into this life, into this, this life of the Trinity, into relationship with this God. And into one of the other characteristics of this God is that this God is free, right? I'm going to put freedom. That's a characteristic. Freedom. This God is free, and God creates beings truly free. And he gives them this world, and he says, you can be free here. You, ha you can make choices. You can actually determine, because God's not interested in a, a video game that he creates, where he can program everyone to act a certain way and to, be, to treat him the way he wants. No, no, he wants free beings to freely be able to give and receive love. And these free beings choose, rather than to respond, reciprocate God's love, they choose... To rebel in what we call the fall. They choose to rebel against this God to, instead of making the world in his image, to say, we want to decide what's good and evil. We want to decide what's right and wrong for the world. We want to be uh, in charge fully. Even though you've given us this whole world that there's nothing, we couldn't have made it, right? Uh, even though so much is here that we couldn't have done, we're going to, to take our freedom and leave you with the rest of your characteristics, Right? And we'll decide from there on out. And so these human beings rebel against God, which brings about a cataclysmic break in the way that the world was designed to be. Uh, the fall does not just affect uh, our um, actions. It affects all of creation. Uh, creation was never designed to exist without God's active, imminent presence amongst it. Um, but th that's what happens because of God's holiness because of God's justice, because of God's righteousness, he has a choice. And at that choice, at Genesis chapter 3, I love Robert Alter is a, a, an Old Testament scholar, very brilliant guy. Um, and he uh, always says that anytime he, he starts a fresh street, he's, he's a, a Jewish scholar. Uh, he says anytime he starts the Tanakh, which is the Hebrew Bible, he says there's always a point at Genesis chapter 3 where I think the words might change and God might make a different decision, and that's the end of the story. The rest of them are just blank pages, right? He's like, I always have that fear because that would have been totally within God's freedom to say, okay, I gave you this. I can take it away, right? Uh, Christmas uh, evening, 
Uh, we had done Christmas at my house, Christmas at my mom's house. And then Sophia was like, hey, I want some more toys. And I was all, I will take every one of those toys and throw them in the garbage, right? Uh, I, I will just, I'll get rid of all of them, you know. I gave them to you. I can take them away. But God didn't choose that. God, in his hesed, in his covenantal love, in his um, what, what in the Old Testament we translate as long-suffering, literally it is long of nose, right? This, this picture of this person who is so patient that their face, when it gets red, they have a long nose. It takes a while to fully encompass their face. Uh, that's the picture. Uh, God is so patient and long-suffering that he says, no, 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 I will withdraw. And he sets out to redeem the world. He makes a promise. He says, I will make this right. How? I'll do it through a seed. He makes this promise. He says to the woman, you know, there will be enmity, or to the serpent, there will be enmity between your offspring and the offspring of the woman. Uh, you will, he will crush your head. You will bruise his heel. There's a promise right there. God immediately makes a covenant of redemption. After the fall, we see some more covenants, right? This is a key part of the Old Testament. Key part of the Old Testament is this God that does not just leave us here. He does not just walk away. God continues to be engaged and continues to make covenants first. Um, first really is there in Genesis chapter 3, but as far as our classical covenants, you have Noah, Abraham, David, uh, makes these covenants of redemption, these promises of what he is going to do in the world. Um, <clears throat> and one of those main covenants happens at Mount Sinai. Got my snow. Um, when God comes down and creates the nation of Israel, I think this will be the last time I have to say it, creates a people in a place for a purpose. And God calls, he to, you know, makes a covenant with Abraham and says, I'm going to make your people into a great nation. He rescues them from, from uh, Exodus, which I always think is important to remember. Rescue, redemption comes before law in the order of things. God rescues first and then says, if you want to be my people, here's the commandments, right? Uh, but grace always comes before command. Um, go, so brings them to the mountain, says, you're going to be my people. I'm going to put you in this place. We talked about that this morning, yada, yada, yada. You know, royal priesthood, holy nation, uh, you get it. Uh, so places them in there. But the people, once again, just like in uh, the garden, do not want to obey. They don't want to go with what God says, and so God sends prophets to tell them to repent, to stop doing that, stop doing what you're doing, and to remind them that the rescuer is coming. And God sends prophet after prophet after prophet. One of my big regrets from last semester of Inhabit is we didn't get to spend too much time in the prophets. Uh, it's just nothing you can do about it, um, but I, I hope that you will at one time dive deeply into the prophets because they are absolutely um, eye-opening. Uh, they, they, they will rock your world and bring you into a whole different understanding of who God is and will engage your imagination in a different way. Anyway, God bring, uh, sends the prophets, tell people to repent uh, and tells them, and God actually told them from Mount Sinai what was going to happen if they kept uh, disobeying, if they kept wrongly reflecting his character out to the nations around them. In Deuteronomy chapter 17 and 18, there is these blessings for obedience within the uh, Mosaic Covenant, and there's curses for disobedience, right? God says, hey, if you disobey me, if you stop living the way I call, I'm going to stop sending rain, 
And if you keep going, I'm going to bring some other nations to sort of bother you. And if you keep going, and if you keep going, and if you keep going, then I'm going to send you into exile. I'm going to take you out of the promised land. I'm going to no longer have you be my people in my place for my purpose. And that's what happens. God sends the nation of Israel into exile. And uh, while eventually they do come back from exile, uh, it is not the same. They are still have sort of an uh, exile mindset because they still have these foreign rulers that are oppressing them. And that is when the Old Testament ends. And the Old Testament is followed by 400 years of silence. Where there is no prophet or there is no more God coming down and making new covenants. There's just silence. And all those promises that God had made, all those rem reminders of the rescuers coming, this is what he's going to look like, all those prophecies are just lingering in the air. And that brings us finally to the New Testament. Uh, and tonight we are going to look at the first step of this, which is the incarnation. And I want to do it through three different passages uh, we're going to look at the incarnation from three different passages and look at three different aspects of it. So if you have your Bible, uh, you can open up to Philippians chapter 2. Uh, if you don't, but you have it on your phone, pull it up there. Um, if you don't have a phone with a Bible on it, uh, then you can just listen. All right, Philippians chapter 2, starting in verse 1, says this. If there is any encouragement in Christ, if any consolation of love, if any fellowship with the Spirit, if any affection and mercy, make my joy complete by thinking the same way, having the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility consider others as more important than yourselves. Everyone should look out not only for his own interest, but also for the interest of others. Adopt the same attitude as that of Christ Jesus, who existing in the form of God, did not count equality with God as something to be exploited. Instead, he emptied himself. By assuming the form of a serpent, taking on the likeness of humanity. And when he had come as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even to death on a cross. For this reason, God highly exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Philippians chapter 2 is a great and famous passage that discusses the incarnation. I think it is the place to start um, when we're looking at this because it's almost like we get the 30,000 foot view of the incarnation from Philippians chapter 2. We get the sort of bigger picture here. So before we start looking at that, I think it's important to... Uh, flesh out some of this. Number one, in, in verse 5, 
or verse 6, it says, Who existing in the form of God did not consider equality with God as something to be exploited. Your version may say something to be grasped, something to be held on to. That's the more literal interpretation of the word, the phrase there. Um, but exploited is a good thing. And, and it's important for us to think about this because when you really think about it, it absolutely blows your mind. If we go back to the beginning of our biblical narrative, we have a triune God, three people in one being, right? One God, three persons, who has existed for eternity. Stop there, mind blown. Okay, let's keep going. Uh, existed for eternity together in perfect harmony, perfect fellowship, never needing anything, a perfectly self-sustainable being for eternity. And this God has been in relationship with other things and has created beings and has been heartbroken by their rebellion and has continued to pursue redemption and continued to go. And then here we get to the point where we, we look specifically at, and in the context of this passage, we're looking at one specific characteristic of God. And Paul, interestingly, when he tusses out, when he is explaining the incarnation, the one characteristic he's focused on is not... Initially, the love of God, which is, I think, what we would have said. If we would have said, what's the reason behind the incarnation? Well, God loves us. Yes, true. But when we're looking at the 30,000-foot the view, the characteristic that's most interesting here, that's most mind-blowing, if you will, is God's humility. That's what Paul is calling us to do. Paul is calling us to be humble people who will not think of ourselves, not think in conceit, not think in self-ambition or in own interest, but think of others, right? Calling us to this life of otherness, this life of giving, this life of humility. And when he looks at the incarnation, that is the overarching Called theologically in, in church history, Philippians chapter 2, verses 6 through 9 are called the threefold humiliation of God. The threefold humiliation of God. Now, humiliation for us has sort of been separated from the word humility. It's like it's brought upon you, not something that you do, but the point is there.